The One Hot Minute podcast is brought to you by The Warehouse, who believe that saving the planet shouldn't cost the earth. Join them on their journey in making the sustainable affordable. Human activities are changing the atmosphere. This is my generation's nuclear-free moment. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. The One Hot Minute Podcast from Stuff's Forever Project. Standing Rock is an Indigenous reservation that straddles the borders of North Dakota and South Dakota. And for half a decade at Standing Rock... Protesters in the fossil fuel industry have been staring each other down. At stake is a vast pipeline for carrying crude oil all the way from North Dakota down to Illinois, more than 1,800 kilometres south. Now, climate activists don't like the pipeline because it keeps fossil fuels flowing. But for local tribes, especially the Standing Rock Sioux, there's more going on than just the climate. The pipeline comes within a kilometre of their land and it passes under the river that runs through the reservation. An oil spill there would be a catastrophe for their drinking water supply. For them, the fight isn't just about climate change or even just drinking water. It's about sovereignty. It's about the relationship between the people and the land. Anyway, in 2017, the pipe was built and the oil started flowing, but the tribes kept pushing back. Earlier this year, a judge told the pipeline operators to stop carrying oil until after a full environmental review. It was a win for the climate, and it wouldn't have happened without Indigenous people. The standoff at Standing Rock is an American story, but it made headlines around the world, and it especially struck a chord with Indigenous people. In New Zealand, many Māori felt a sense of solidarity about these protests. One of the most vocal was Green MP Marama Davidson, and she's today's guest. I'm Eloise Gibson, Stuff's Climate Change Editor, and you're listening to the One Hot Minute podcast. Here's how it works. Stuff has launched an online video series called One Hot Minute, where we give each guest just 60 seconds to tell their climate change story. And then in this podcast, we dig a bit deeper into what they said in that video. Marama Davidson is the co-leader of the Greens. She is Ngāti Porau, Te Rarawa and Ngāpuhi. In her one-hot-minute video, she says Māori have very specific solutions to offer when it comes to climate change. Like the Standing Rock Sioux, she thinks Māori have a responsibility to protect their land for the long term. But Davidson thinks that's a responsibility all of us, Māori or not, should share. Kia ora, Marama Davidson. Kia ora, Eloise. Welcome to the One Hot Minute podcast. Thank you. In your one-minute video, you've talked about planning for a world seven generations from now. But right now here in 2020, you have six children of your own. Just for the minute, let's forget about the future generations. I would like to know what kind of conversations you have with your kids now about climate change. Oh, goodness. Um Do they know about climate change are the sorts of questions I talk with them about. What do they learn at school about climate change? What do they think it means for them? And trying to sort of draw out a conversation where they are at 
how it impacts on them, what they think it's mean. And they're pretty smart, like most children. Our children get it. They get that we have to change the way that we are living. They get that we have to be long-term in our thinking. And I'm, I'm really pleased that that generation has got awareness that my generation never had. Had they said anything that surprised you? Uh, they really were inspired by the school climate strikes here in Aotearoa. Um, they're only young. They are uh, 11, 12 and 14. And they feel like those young people are standing up for the right thing to do. And I'm really pleased that that sort of collective action is inspiring them. Now, hang on. We've said in our intro that you've got six kids. Have we doubled your number of children no, somehow? No, I've got three older ones ah. um, who are adults and a grandchild. Uh, so it's the three young ones that I have those sort of day-to-day conversations with. The other ones have their own lives and are living elsewhere as well. Sticking with family for a minute but moving the other way up the generations, your dad is the actor Rawiri Paratene. He's famous for being in Whale Rider and other things. He's pretty outspoken on environmental issues. Did he talk to you about climate change? There's very much a whānau understanding of how to look after papatuanuku. That's been something that's been a part of being Indigenous, actually, being tangata whenua. Um, when you grow up at the foot of your maunga in Hokianga like we did, uh, when you swim in your rivers every day in summer, you understand that there's a responsibility to protect your living systems for future generations. And that's something that my father understood from generations before him. So it's, it's more of a generational transmission than just parent to children. I was interested, actually, in your minute, you talked about having kaitiaki responsibilities. Do you think those responsibilities fall more heavily on Māori? Is this a special responsibility? Uh, It's a responsibility that understands that we are nothing without clean water, clean soil, clean air, that we are nothing without being able to feed people from our marae and pick the watercress in seven generations that we are picking today. Um, That everything that we depend on from Papatuanuku is central to us being people at all. So there's a connection, I think, that is important. One that I think all humans at one time or another understood, but um, not all communities and not all peoples have maintained that same level of connection. That's quite a holistic view. Mm. Are there any climate-specific aspects to this kaitiakitanga? Absolutely. It's about not just, for example, reducing emissions, but getting to the core systemic causes. So we understand that colonisation, which removed our land and removed our language and way of life from us in a way that was quite harmful, that that also contributes to environmental degradation, to climate pollution, to social inequality. If Māori and Indigenous peoples around the world were able to uphold our governance, um, our kaitiaki, our caretaker responsibilities over our lands the way that we always had, then we would see better outcomes for the whole world in having industries and community way of living that shares the benefits of the earth with everybody rather than holding it into the power of a few and that understands that we cannot choose to do activities that are going to deplete the health of our air and our soil and our water because they're not going to keep us safe for the long term. That's a very Indigenous way of thinking that needs to return to all communities and all peoples. I want to get back to a lot of those themes but before I do let's just talk about daily life. 
has your daily life changed in response to climate change? As a member of parliament, what is sad and challenging for Green MPs in particular is the fact that our job requires us to travel a lot, requires us to move around the world and the country a lot. That actually really plays on our conscience every single day. We need to be moving away from our reliance on fossil fuels and a lot of our job actually makes it really difficult to do that. So like, how many times do you think you flew overseas last year? I've been um, over the Pacific in the past sort of couple of years or one year. I've been around the Pacific as part of the Pacific mission that uh, Winston Peters leads. But I also try and limit my own overseas travel. And I think it's really heroic that individuals do what they can in their daily lives to reduce our pollution, to change our way of living. But we also need the big systemic changes, the you know, getting polluters to pay for their pollution, getting polluters to change the way that they produce goods, understanding that everything we consume and waste needs to be put back to the earth in a way that is not harming our earth any further. So there are big systemic changes and daily stuff. For us as a family, we really struggle as inner city, sort of urban living, ordinary households. We struggle with waste like everyone else does. Everything is packaged to the hilt. Making those sorts of changes as a whānau has been more conscious in the last few years, trying to reduce our consumption, trying to choose the things that we're able to because we're in a privileged position, choose products which have less waste and less impact on the earth, trying to choose activities that have less impact on the earth, um, as a family, we haven't taken a family holiday overseas for or for decades, actually, probably 20 years. Um, and so choosing things as much as we can that are kinder to our planet. What about, what do you drive? Oh, that's a really good question. So another way we have chosen to try and sort of do better is drive our cars to death. Because <laughs> they're dirty. They're dirty cars. Um, and so use them and use them until they literally can't move anymore before we think about getting another one. And so I just recently drove a big people mover to death and replaced it with my brother's second-hand van. I feel the clean car standards people at the Ministry for the Environment having heart attacks yeah. as you speak here. <laughs> yeah, because what I'd like to see is more people being able to choose to drive cleaner cars. But, you know, that thing is because driving it to death rather than replace it with another dirty car like we do at the moment. So driving cars to death, the ones that we've got, and being able to be in a position to choose to drive cleaner cars. And that's what we aspire to, and we're not able to do that yet. Do you still live in Manurewa? I do. Is it hard, do you think, for people living in suburbs like that, they're not rich suburbs, to live good lives from the perspective of the climate. Yes, and this is why bringing everybody up to decent living standards, bringing everyone's consciousness to a space where they can even think about climate change. I've had people say to me every every time I put up a climate post, they're like, well, yeah, I'm glad you're clear about the climate but right now I don't have a home to live in. So I can't get on board this movement until I can feed my children and not stress about the day-to-day -day living situation that I'm in. So we understand that we can't address climate on its own, that there is no climate without making sure that people are living 
decent lives that they feel in control of so that we can all come together collectively to resolve the climate issue. I'm really interested in what people can choose to do in their lives. So, for example, my family made a decision when I became an MP and when we had a stable income that we can choose to only ever buy free-range eggs, for example, Not every family can do that. In fact, many families can barely afford any eggs at all. But when we are able to ensure that people are living their best lives, then they will be able to make those choices for their own lives. And that's important, role modelling how we live and living that connection to Papatuanuku is as important as making the big systemic changes. You have said in the past that poverty action needs to come first. Do you think there's a risk that that delays climate action simply because the constituency for climate action might be bigger across the political spectrum? I wouldn't have thought I would have said that poverty action needs to come first because I'm a strong believer that everything needs to happen at the same time. Mm. And in fact, reducing poverty, um, ending poverty, um, making sure homes are affordable and are a public good uh, is part of taking climate action as well. When people are able to feel that they're in control and have the headspace, I like that word, and have the headspace to be involved in that sort of large groundswell of movement for protecting our planet and our people, that's when people will feel more invested. That's when people will feel more able to participate and engage in those discussions and the thinking towards the solutions. When we are leaving people behind in stressful miserable living situations, we are not going to be able to have the better solutions. Not everyone is going to be involved. So we need to address inequality, climate change, environmental degradation, all at the same time, and not as isolated issues. They are all related and connected to each other as well. Do you think transport is a big part of this? It's massive. It is the uh, second biggest sector of climate pollution, if you like, um, next to agriculture. And in the cities, that's key. And that's why part of taking climate action is putting bigger investment into public cleaner, smarter, affordable public transport so I can get less people who need to drive their cars everywhere. Now, I don't want to freak you out here, but we do have a short quiz. <laughs> freak out already. It's very serious because you will get an official score out of three. Oh, I'm feeling like I'm at school again and I'm feeling the sweat pouring out of my pores. I promise that I don't <laughs> I don't have a ruler. I'm not going to wrap anyone's knuckles. I'm just going to give you okay, come a score out of three. Question number one, okay. Madam Davidson. True or false? There is nowhere on earth that is colder than it was 100 years ago. I'm going to say that's true. There was nowhere on earth that is cold. I'm going to say true. Mm. It's false. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because we're always reading and hearing that average temperatures are going up, and that is absolutely true. But there's a few little spots that are bucking the trend. The extremes, exactly. And weirdly, there's a couple of places in the United States where the reason that those temperatures are going down is actually because of climate change. So scientists think that the polar vortex has moved, and so you're getting those weird little patchy effects around the globe. And I... Friggin' knew that. Of course you did. Of course you did. We ask. We just really ask these so that we get, to, we get to Google the answers. <laughs> All right, question number two. With the passing of the Zero Carbon Bill, New Zealand became the second country in the world to enshrine a zero carbon goal in law. 
after the UK. Is that true? Of all the things I know about my own party's legislation, that one I think is true. False. Oh, what? Okay, but here's where things get a little bit finicky, right? Yeah, because they have done something. Exactly. Bear in mind, we're only counting countries who've passed the legislation. So there's a long list of countries who've said in words that they're committed to zero carbon by 2050. But as you know, getting it passed in law, that's a different thing. Okay, question number three. How do you pronounce the last name, and I want to hear the last name only, of the fierce young Swedish woman who sparked School Strike for Climate? Thunberg? My name is Greta Thunberg. I'm 15 years old, and I'm from Sweden. Thunberg. Blast, I have wanted to know how to start properly, so that's very helpful. <laughs> Madame, I'm, I'm going to have to give you zero out of three, which is <laughs> disappointing to me as a, as a Green MP. But bear in mind, we picked questions that we didn't necessarily feel confident about the answers to ourselves. <laughs> I, I, will, I will go with that shame. I will hang my head on that. Absolutely. Let's, let's get you back in a year. <laughs> All right, look, let's get back to the, the serious stuff. Um, your one hot minute touched on Indigenous peoples' responses to climate change. It seems like an issue that's been close to your heart for a long time. Uh, when you entered Parliament in 2015 as a Green List MP, right there in your maiden speech, you said, affirming Indigenous rights and supporting our traditional wisdoms is essential to combating climate change and inequality. What did you mean by that? It recognises that around the world, Indigenous peoples have had our lands through colonisation taken from us, stolen from us, um, and oftentimes genocide and murder have happened to remove our lands from us. They have been taken from us for the purposes of capitalism, for the purposes of an imperial agenda um, for capitalism. And those capitalist actions have largely involved extractive industry and depleting the resources of the earth. And that, those emissions, the result of the emissions from those capitalist and extractive industries have led to the massive uh, climate change crisis that we are facing today. As an example, uh, just last year, year before, we had the Dakota Pipeline Standing Rock issue where um, the First Nations peoples came together to stop an oil pipeline through their lands and through their waters. Here in Aotearoa, I've stood with my Ngāpuhi and Ngāti Pro people protecting our seas from further deep-sea oil exploration and extraction. When we affirm Indigenous governance and kaitiaki over our lands, it is also part and parcel of preventing further extractive and polluting industries. When we talk about tackling climate change, do you think that a Māori way of looking at the world or a Ngāti Porau or Ngāpuhi way brings solutions to the table? What might some of those be? Absolutely. For far too long, Indigenous knowledge... Mātauranga Māori, Māori knowledges, have been completely denied at the table of our solutions. What more and more non-Indigenous people are realising today, just like the ecosystem, all of our wisdoms and all of our knowledges need to contribute to the solutions. When you leave out any of the knowledges, when you leave out any of the wisdoms, you are going to contribute less enduring solutions, just like the forest. In the forest, every small creature, every microscopic creature, every large creature and species has a vital role to play. It's same with knowledge. We need all of our knowledge. And an example of that 
is perhaps just the way that I was thinking. I remember my, I'll give my nanny example from the East Coast who said we need to be planning 100-year plans. None of this three-year parliamentary term, not even the local council 10-year-ahead plans, not even the 50-year-ahead plans. We need to be planning minimum of 100 years ahead so that we can maintain that we are protecting the way that we live for future generations. And that's an example of Indigenous thinking that everyone is realising we should have been doing a long time ago. Are the consequences of climate change different for Māori, do you think? Absolutely. For Mm. Indigenous peoples, for Māori, for our Pacific relations and cousins as well. Um, When we are already bearing the massive impacts of poverty and inequality as it is, what that means is that further harsh impacts of climate change are going to hammer people already struggling. The Pacific peoples, I always hark back to what they say, which is around their peoples have contributed the least to climate change, but are being impacted the most in the first. So their seas are rising and their lands are slowly disappearing. And so absolutely, they are being impacted on right now. People on coastal communities a lot of which are Māori, who have our ancestors buried on coastal communities, who have our marakai, our gardens in those areas, um, people who are set up along river blanks, which may be prone to flooding and erosion, are all going to be impacted on, and we need to have a plan in place to both mitigate and adapt to the harm from climate change, while at the same time sussing out the pollution at its core at the genesis. Do you think that New Zealand has a whānau obligation to Pacific refugees of the future? Absolutely. And iwi around the country from time to time have all said, well, as hosts, we would like to welcome our Pacific relations to our region. And I think that's a really good approach is rohe by rohe, iwi by iwi and hapu by hapu. People have those discussions with our Pacific leadership to be able to say, we have an obligation, we are connected, uh, we have a whakapapa connection and we need to set ourselves up to be able to welcome our Pacific relations. But at the same time, they're also very clear They want to stay as much as they possibly can, that we have an obligation also to reduce our emissions so that as much as possible, they can stay on their lands. There was a lovely line in a speech you gave earlier this year where you talked about planting a kauri tree on your family whenua in the Hokianga. You talked about your brother saying the best time to plant this tree would have been 20 years ago, but the second best time is now. That seemed like a nice analogy for climate change. Are we too late to win this now? No, we cannot be. We have to be very clear that with the hope, with the power of people mobilising and working together around the world, that we can do this. We have no choice but to hope and maintain our our connecting and our, our powerful movements on the streets, our choosing of the right leadership in places of power, our rebuilding of grassroots community structures that return power back to the people, we can only have hope. We must only have hope to keep working. And we actually have, we have a plan. We have visions. We have tools that we can use. And we have to maintain that hope um, because that is how people can continue to feel like there is something that they can do no matter where they're at in life. As individuals, there is a part to play for absolutely everyone, and that is how we are going to overcome these big challenges together. 
Thank you, Madam Davidson. Kia ora, Eloise. Thank you. So that's it for this time. Thanks for listening to the One Hot Minute podcast. Don't forget to also check out the One Hot Minute video series where you can see Marta Davidson deliver her big idea in just 60 seconds. There are links on the Stuff homepage and from Play Stuff. If you want to make sure you catch every episode of this podcast, go subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this right now. And if you have a second, give us a quick star rating on Apple Podcasts. Go on, make it five stars. It helps other listeners find us. This episode was produced by Adam Dudding and me, Eloise Gibson. It's part of the Forever Project, Stuff's newly launched portfolio of climate change coverage. Thanks to Patrick Crudson and Carol Hirschfeld. Thanks also to The Guardian and the Associated Press for their ongoing reporting on Standing Rock, which we drew on for this episode. More information is at stuff.co.nz slash one hot minute. See you next time.